Our reading this morning is from Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 10. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, again, good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here uh, to serve you alongside Fred and Bridget and Tanner and the rest of the, the team here. It's good to be here this morning. I know we just read from Isaiah 53, uh, but the first scripture I want us to consider this morning, just by way of introducing what we're doing over the next six weeks, is actually 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. So if you have your Bibles, you can look there. If not, you can look on the screen. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Comfort. If you and I were to uh, make a list of those things that are important to us in this life, right now, here today, I imagine that if we're like, making an honest list, not like some, like, uh, I go to church, so I'll make like, a spiritual list. But if we're making like, an honest list, like comfort is somewhere near the top of that list, right? Financial comfort. The bank accounts look good, right? Relational comfort. The marriage looks good, right? Physical comfort, right? The lazy boy feels good, right? Comfort, comfort. Comfort, as you know, and you're well aware of this, is not without its dark side, though, right? Khalil Gibran, a Lebanese poet and writer, once said this, The lust for comfort, that stealthy thing that enters the house a guest and then becomes a host and then a master. The lust for for comfort. Uh, understandably then, uh, in Christian circles, in the church, uh, comfort, I think, gets a bad rep, right? Gets a bad rep. In part, that's, that, that, that's for good. I, I'm glad it has a bad rep. In, in part, uh, our desire to be comfortable keeps us from, from stepping out. 
It keeps us from putting our, our faith in God and what he's doing both in our lives and in this world around us. In short, our desire for comfort, it keeps us to ourselves. If there is a small G God in Vancouver, if there is a small G God in Kitsilano, it goes by the name of comfort. Comfort. And unless that God is dethroned both inside and outside the church, well, we don't stand a chance. And yet, as we come to 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 this morning, we find that it's comfort that Paul is so eager to extend early in his letter to this church. Did you notice that? God is the God of all comfort. We've received comfort for the purposes of extending that comfort to one another as a church, yes, but also to a hurting world. And indeed, to be in Christ is not only to to suffer, but also to experience the same comfort that Jesus knew as well. Comfort. See, we all long for comfort. So perhaps the problem isn't that we're looking for the wrong thing. Perhaps the problem is that we're looking for the right thing in the wrong places. You and I, fragile, needy creatures, need comfort. So this morning, you're in luck. Now, before you get really excited and think there's like a, a key underneath like your chair to like a car or something like that, you get a car, you get a car, you get comfort, you get comfort. Uh, it's not that kind of situation. As, as the slide, if you want to go back to the, the graphic uh, guide, as the slide suggests, this is comfort from the cross. Comfort from the cross. It's, it's a strange, almost paradoxical thing to consider, isn't it? Right? Comfort from an execution. Peace through such a gruesome path. But over the next six weeks, as we lead into Easter, we're going to look at the Old Testament. We're going to look in the New Testament. We're going to look in the, uh, the Gospels and the Epistles. We're even going to go to John's Revelation. And, and there we'll find that, that the cross of Jesus gives us this unique comfort uh, that, that nothing else gives us. That no one else offers. I want us to see the cross from these different angles, these, these different perspectives. And so Fred and I will, will lead in that. Whether you're here this morning as, as a Christian or, or not Christian, the, the fact of the matter is that the death of Jesus on the cross, whatever meaning, whatever literality you would ascribe to it, is the most significant historical event ever. Period. It's the most well-known historical event ever. Period. There's there's, there's no debating that. Right? The death of Jesus on the cross has touched every corner of our culture, every corner of our society. You see this perhaps most vividly and obviously in the arts, right? I I did my uh, undergrad in literature. So you have these great, you know, substitutionary atoning figures in literature. You think of, you know, Leonidas in Sparta, right? Which was a, there was, you know, that. 300 is based on, you know, something that was written, right? Leonidas in Sparta holding the hot gates, right? You have Romeo and Juliet who, who they die, yes, but they bring families together in their death, right? Even that, like that Tom Cruise movie where he, he dies killing like an alien, right? And like one of the thousand alien movies that he does, right? This great substitutionary atoning figure, all the classics, right? I, I, I can remember I was in... Uh, elementary school, and, and I was going to church at the time, and all my friends got really into buying cross necklaces, 
And I was immediately just so encouraged. Here I was thinking that I was alone by myself. And all the while, all my friends were devout Christians, right? You guys know about the cross as well? Oh, this is amazing, right? There's not a corner of our society that has not been touched by the cross. Whatever meaning, whatever literality we would ascribe to it. I I think that's why the next weeks will be so difficult for us. See, if you grew up in the church, the cross, and I don't say this to offend you, but the cross has maybe become boring to you. Maybe you assume the cross. Yeah, the cross, so what? Move on. Talk about my... My daily life. If you, if you haven't grown up in the church, perhaps you're not a Christian. Perhaps you want to see the cross as this cultural symbol, right? right? Just like there's that, that the crescent moon for, for Muslims, so too is there a cross for Christians. Just like a logo. I want us, over the next six weeks, as we go through these different texts, to see the cross afresh. To hear the cross and the good news of the cross afresh. And, and primarily to be comforted by it. This morning we're going to go to Isaiah 53, 3-10. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there now. But Isaiah 53, 3-10 uh, this morning is going to uh, help us to see uh, the cross through the four lenses or the four Ps of a prophecy. If you're taking notes, here, here's the outline. A prophecy, a poem, a person, a paradox. A prophecy, a poem, a person, a paradox. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray uh, this morning? Lord, I have no comfort in and of myself. No tips or tricks, no systems or schemes. No clever or wise sayings uh, to offer the comfort that your cross and your cross alone can uh, offer us this morning. So I ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your cross afresh this morning. That we would receive the comfort that your cross alone and the work on your cross alone can bring. Lord, we need you. Help us, we pray. Amen. First, a prophecy. A prophecy. Again, I don't know how long you've been a Christian for, but it should cause us to be amazed, cause us to wonder that what we read here in Isaiah 53 was written 700 years before the cross of Jesus Christ. Like, that should, just, that should just blow our minds, right? Perhaps you've heard this before, you grew up in the church, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I heard it before. It should still amaze us. It should still cause us to, to wonder. And, and the way it's written, you figure that not only was Isaiah you know, talking about some you know, atoning death, but you figure Isaiah's front row, right? He, he's there. He can see it. And why should we be comforted by this? If we go back a few chapters before our text in Isaiah 53, uh, in Isaiah 46, 8 to 10, we read this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
as we come to Isaiah 46, and indeed this latter half of Isaiah, we, we find here a, a message to God's people on the other side, having just gone through Babylonian exile. The last few years have not been great for God's people. In fact, they've been terrible. They've, they, they've been horrible, right? And you can imagine the attitudes of the people, right? You and I get angry in traffic at God. Like, God, why are you allowing me to be in this traffic jam, right? You can imagine how God's people are feeling after Babylonian exile. Frustrated to say the least. And actually, we don't have to imagine, because in Isaiah 40, 27, we read this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? God's people have just been through the ringer. Where was he? What could he be up to? Does he even care about me? Does he even care about us? Do you ever think like that? Do you ever think like that? Well, God responds to the doubts and the fears of the people. He says twofold. First off, you were in exile, not because I was, you know, off somewhere or busy doing something else, but because of divine judgment. Because of your sin, you were in exile. And furthermore, have I not brought you back by the hand of Persia? I've been faithful. I've proven faithful. And it's at this point we read what we just read in Isaiah 46. We read this. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. There is no such thing as meaningless suffering in the plan of God. No such thing. Just as it was God's purpose that Israel might be purified by fire through Babylonian exile, so too do we see in Isaiah 53 that it has always been the plan of God that he would send his son to suffer and die for our sins. We see this from the earliest of chapters in the Bible, don't we? From Adam, whose nakedness and shame was covered by the killing of an animal. To Abraham, who ties his one and only son Isaac to the altar. Now to the words of Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It has always been the plan of God to rescue his people in the giving of his son. To save them through suffering. I was joking with some some guys up in the balcony before our gathering began. and, and, And some people read this text as if, oh man, how could God have let this happen? You know, how, how could God have, 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 have dropped the ball on this one? But do you notice God's intimate and close hand in, in, in this whole text? In all of Isaiah 53, what do we read? Smitten by who? By God. And afflicted. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of who? The Lord to crush him. There is great comfort, great comfort, untold comfort in knowing that we are taking part in the unfolding of a story that was written long ago. 
God, unlike the protests of the Israelites, was not napping. He is not off doing something more important. He is not unaware. Rather, the sovereign hand of the Lord is orchestrating each and every moment of our lives, much as he orchestrated the death of his own son for our good and for his glory. See, what we do is we say, you know, God, I know you're in charge of these big events, right? The Berlin Wall coming down, God, you were probably involved there, right? Right? D-Day, God, God, you were probably involved there, right? Jesus on the cross, God, you absolutely had to be involved in these big historic events. But then we think his arm is too short as to be involved in our everyday lives. Just the big pieces, uh, the, the rest you sort of farm out to, to your help. Maybe if you can get to it. And that's not the picture Scripture gives us. We have a God who not only is orchestrating these big, momentous, history-turning events, but is also intimately involved in our everyday life. That the cross was prophesied long ago should bring great comfort to us. Well, in Isaiah 53, 3-10, we have a prophecy, but as, we, but as I said, we also have, and this is our second P, a poem. We have a poem. Perhaps you, you notice this. Uh, is it strange, do you find it strange at all, that we have this prophecy in Isaiah 53 that is of great importance, right? This is really important, that, that we understand that this servant who comes to heal us and to save us is also this, this suffering servant. But it comes to us, how? In the form of a poem. Now, if I want my wife... To, to know what to pick up at the grocery store for us, I don't text her like a cryptic message of like, you should get that thing which cometh from the cow and then get that thing that also cometh from the chicken, but, but not both. You know, like I don't send these cryptic text messages to her. I don't write poetry to her. I say, get the milk, get the eggs, and I put it like a, a heart face emoji or something like that, right? I don't send her poems, right? The, math is the language of precision. Bullet point notes is the language of precision. But Isaiah 53 comes to us as a poem. As a poem. I think there is something to be learned here. We live in this scientifically revolutionized, empirically driven world. Where if you want to make a point that sticks, at least in in some circles these days, not all of them. You have to have the data, you have to have the science to back it up. And often, and I do this because I'm a, I'm a logical thinker, I'm not very much a, a feeler, uh, I do this. Uh, often we take this, this viewpoint and this, this way of thinking to Scripture, right? What are three to four principles I can get from this text? What's the cultural, uh, historical background here? Uh, what, what's the timeline of events, right? We want to know the facts of it, okay? And here's what I should do. Awesome. Downloading information. And there's nothing wrong with that, Right? The Bible is full of truth that we are to absorb and learn from and then live into. But what if Scripture is not just about downloading information, but actually, as well, in addition, inspiring imagination? Awakening our hearts. What's the language we find in Isaiah 53? It's like shocking, poignant, vivid language, right? Despised, rejected, pierced, crushed. Oppressed, you, you feel that, right? Slaughter, prolong, right? Prosper. We have this vivid analogy of a sheep heading to heading to slaughter. Isaiah fifty three six to seven, right? 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Can, can you picture the scene? Like a lamb that has led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. What are we reading our Bibles for? Are we reading our Bibles simply for the downloading of information for the gleaning of one or two principles, or are we reading our Bibles to inspire our imagination? Are we seeing the cross simply as uh, representing some static theological doctrine? Are we looking at the cross simply as a historical event to be logged alongside other historical events? Or do we see the cross the way Isaiah does in Isaiah 53? Right? Do you ever just pull up a, a front row to the cross and then pull up a seat alongside Isaiah and just, just sit there? Just think about it? Reflect on it? That the cross of Christ was long ago prophesied should comfort us. But that the prophecy comes to us in the form of a poem should do the same. Have you ever felt despised? Jesus felt despised. Have you ever experienced felt injustice? Felt slandered? Felt like you had done, like, like, like harm had been done to you, though you had done nothing wrong? Jesus felt those things. He felt injustice. Have you ever felt like you had no hope? Jesus felt and experienced all these things so that you would always have a hope. See, we often link imagination to fiction or, or, or fantasy or to make-believe. But I think faith requires a sanctified imagination, doesn't it? It's one of the reasons God gives us poetry, poetic imagery throughout the Bible. Imagination, again, is not antithetical to truth. Indeed, I think this, this is really the heart of it. Sanctified imagination enables us not just to know what God has done, not just to know what God is doing, not just to know what God will do, but to delight in what God has done, to delight and enjoy what God is doing, to delight and enjoy what God will do. How do you read your Bibles? Simply for the downloading of information or for the inspiring of your imagination? Because I think in Isaiah 53, our imagination is supposed to be inspired. Our hearts are to be affected. Our emotions are to be turned and stirred here. That the cross comes to us in Isaiah 53 in the form of a poem, a poem intended to warm our hearts to the reality of the cross, well, that should comfort us. Uh, our third P, third P, we have a prophecy, we have a poem, finally, we, not so, thirdly rather, we have a person, a person. Without a doubt, uh, the heart of Isaiah 53, uh, the heart of what this text wants to communicate is the death of a person, Jesus Christ, on the cross in the place of sinners. This is the heart of Isaiah 53. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear, hear what Isaiah wants us to see here. That Jesus Christ, this suffering servant, has died on the cross in our place. Transgressions that were not his, he has taken upon himself. He has died. Now you have to understand, if we read this passage in context, Isaiah is building up to this point, right? There's this tension rising in the prophet's writing. Isaiah has been telling us about this, this servant, 
This servant who will come, Isaiah 43 says, to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. A servant who will bring about God's justice to people who are blind, fumbling around in the darkness. But there's a fundamental problem that Isaiah has to address. Indeed, we come to the Old Testament, and we we have to answer this question. How does a holy God, a holy God, come to an unholy people? How does a sinless, perfect God walk amongst a sinful, very imperfect people? And it's in Isaiah 53 that finally his hand is shown. That we find an answer to this this question. The servant he will send, that is God will send, will be a suffering servant. The wrath of God we rightly deserve, this suffering servant will bear. The transgressions we've committed will count on his record. Isaiah 53, 5-6, look again with me. But he was pierced for whose? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, not us, on him, the iniquity of us all. Who has considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Isaiah 53, verse 4, don't you realize, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's not by accident, it's not by chance that Isaiah evokes the imagery of a lamb being led to the slaughter. It is always the plan of God that there would come a day when his people would no longer have to offer up sacrifices. No longer have to spill the blood of an animal. Where the sacrifice of his son, his perfectly obedient, suffering servant, would be all we would ever need, right? This is what the author of Hebrews tells us, right? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14 of Hebrews 10. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If there is any item of comfort, perhaps in the series, perhaps in this life, if there is any comfort you should leave followers of Jesus here this morning with, it's this comfort. This is the comfort par excellence. The striving is over. What you wouldn't do, Jesus has done. What you couldn't do, Jesus has done. The suffering you could endure, Jesus has endured that suffering. The shame that you can't even relate to has been His. The injustice He was subjected to. His injustice has led to our legal declaration of freedom. This is the comfort. The person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, has now become our mediator. Inviting all of those who believe in him into a worshipful relationship with the very God we were created for. By his wounds, we are healed. And if you're not a Christian here today, again, this is the heart of our faith. 
This is why I can wake up this morning and, and, and be joyful in the midst of whatever trials I'm going through. This is it right here. It's nothing more than this. It's nothing less than this, but it's nothing more than this. And look around you. The church is the place, not for those who have figured it out. The place, not for those who have qualified by their good deeds or their philanthropic work. And the church is, is not even a place of, of morally minded people who have the same political agenda. The church is a gathering of those who have been healed by the great physician. Right? If you're here this morning and you're part of this family, part of this fellowship, part of the church, you have been healed by the great physician. How? By the cross. In Matthew 8, we find a quotation of Isaiah 53 immediately after Jesus has just healed uh, three very unlikely people. A leper, a Gentile, and a woman. Three unlikely people, three outsiders in Jesus' time. Then Matthew writes this in Matthew eight seventeen: This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 53. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Sure, Jesus has brought physical healing to these three individuals, Yeah. But what Matthew wants us to see by adding Isaiah 53 as a footnote to these three healings of three outsiders, this leper, this Gentile, this woman, three people on the margins, is that a greater healing has occurred. Firstly, between man and God, this vertical healing, but also there's been a horizontal healing. A healing amongst all of humanity who are in Christ. How? By the cross of Christ. The unity we all long for, that political parties scratch and claw for, right? That governments have sought by force and propaganda. The the unity that we all long for is ours in Christ by the cross of Christ. This is good news. This is comfort to us. Isaiah 53, 6 reminds us that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The point being that Jesus' death in the place, in our place to pay for our sin, is effectively gathering for himself a people, as the Apostle John sees, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, The cross excludes no one on the basis of ethnicity. The cross excludes no one on the basis of gender. Cross excludes no one on the basis of past sins. Do you hear that this morning? It excludes no one according to their annual income. Maybe you came in this morning and you're killing it at life. You're riding high. Top of the food chain. Everything's going well. The cross reminds you that you're so bad, the Son of God had to die for your sins, right? Maybe you came in this morning not feeling like the top of the food chain. Feeling like the bottom of the food chain. Lowly, despised, rejected. The cross of Christ reminds you this morning that the Son of God came to die for your sin. Equal ground, level footing at the foot of the cross. So take comfort. The message of the cross is come. It's come. It's come. 
Which brings us finally to our fourth P, uh, paradox. And I hinted at this in our introduction, but we must admit at this point, there's a seemingly absurd thing going on here, isn't there? That we would take comfort from the cross. That you and I might find life in his death. That we would have joy in his sorrow. Victory in his being victimized. But I want to close today by suggesting that it's this very paradox, this very seemingly absurd thing that should shape how we live today. Uh, Again, we find Isaiah 53 ever popular amongst our New Testament authors being quoted again in in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, if you've read it before, it's this letter to, to people in exile. People who are strangers, foreigners, trying to figure out how how do we do the nitty-gritty of life? How how do we live, you know, in life with all the challenges and oppositions that we might face? This is 1 Peter 4. In particular, we find Isaiah 53 quoted in a section where, where Peter's laying out a household code. Slaves, this is how you relate to masters. Masters to slaves. Husbands to wives. Wives to husbands. And we read this in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. What does Isaiah 53 have to do with how we live today? Well, Peter Peter will tell us. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, do you hear these echoes of Isaiah? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wound you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The death of Jesus on the cross not only accomplishes for us something that we could never accomplish, it also set the stage for the sort of paradoxical life that following Jesus would entail, right? Namely, that we will suffer unjustly, and yet we're still called to act righteously. You and I, Christian, follower of Jesus, will not live a a fair life, nor can we expect that. Recently, I came across an example of a woman uh, who followed Jesus in this paradox, uh, named Kara Tippett. Uh, Kara Tippett is the wife of, of a pastor in the States. Uh, she's, she's a mother of four, uh, wife, wife of one, um, author of a book, uh, Helping, uh, sorry, The Hardest Peace, Experiencing Grace in the Midst of Life. And I wish I could tell you that this book was about just like everyday mothering and just sort of like the challenges and, and, and the ways we can overcome that. Um, but it's actually about the challenges of life as, as Kara uh, faced a terminal cancer diagnosis, stage four cancer. Man, there are few things that feel more unfair, more unjust uh, than a terminal diagnosis in the prime of your life. And perhaps you know something of this injustice. But in her book, Kara is careful not to point fingers. She's careful not to assign blame. On the contrary, she's brutally honest about what she actually deserves, what she really deserves. And Kara writes this. Jesus didn't have to extend his love. He didn't have to think of me when he went up on that cross. 
he overcame my fear of death in that unbelievable, beautiful moment. And the fruit of that death, that, that resurrection, and that stunning grace is peace. It is the hardest peace because it is brutal, horribly brutal and ugly, and we want to look away. But it is the greatest, greatest story that ever was. And on March 22nd, 2015, Kara went to be with the Lord. Kara's witness to Jesus in the midst of her cancer diagnosis, in the midst of her suffering, well, while not perfect, right? Who amongst us suffers perfectly? It pointed to a greater reality. That in Jesus' death on the cross for sinners, we have known and will know forever and indeed will enjoy forever love that we didn't deserve. Take comfort. It was the plan of God that Jesus was crucified. He is in control. Take comfort. It was the plan of God that your hearts would be stirred by his crucifixion. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who has felt what we have felt. Take comfort. The God-man Jesus has become our mediator. He has taken the sin we deserve so that we might approach a holy God clothed in Jesus' righteousness. So that we might have a relationship that, that, that we don't deserve. Take comfort. Though we will suffer, be reviled, have justice withheld in this life, we have an inheritance purchased for us on the cross that is imperishable, unshakable, that cannot be taken from us by death or by cancer. Friends, join me this morning in looking to the cross and taking comfort from it. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.